Hey, this is Zach from Citizens and Saints. Our new album, Amir Dimly, is out, and we cannot wait to play these songs for you live. We'll be traveling with our friends King's Kaleidoscope, who also just put out a new record, Beyond Control, along with special guests, the Sing Team, for the Live Love Tour. Starting October 14th, we'll be in Des Moines, Iowa, and then traveling through the Midwestern parts of the states. We'll end on October 19th in Columbus, Ohio. For more details or to get your tickets today, go to livelovedtour.com. Devil, clever devil, devil, how quickly they do sell their souls for the feast and the promise of gold, but devil. That won't be me. Well, it seems like on one end, we just want to reduce it just to spirits floating in the air versus the liberal impulse to just focus on social justice. It's at both end. And if you split the two, you actually kind of miss the bigger pattern. And I think that compromises our ability to battle evil in the world because we've been forced into a false dichotomy. Make them think they ever stood a chance do not try me devil devil can i buy me devil devil oh man <laughs> welcome to the deconstructionist podcast in hell the month of october <laughs> we are your hilarious hosts <laughs> we think we're funny anyway i'm adam narlock and i am john williamson I need to make sure I get the perfect music for this month, by the way. This whole thing is just, I can't, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, and so as you're listening to this, I still haven't figured out the music yet. So <laughs> so we don't know what's going on right now. It'll be a surprise. But we do know that from the time we started this podcast, we talked about how if we're still going in October, <laughs> we should do a whole month on hell and Satan and demons. and Yes. And oh man, we got our first big guest. Whoa. Uh, I, I was like... Totally pumped to have this guy. I couldn't wait. We had to reschedule, I think, a couple times uh, just because of our, our schedules being hectic over the summer. But um, we've got Dr. Richard Beck. <laughs> and uh, for those of you that listen to similar podcasts to ours, he's been on uh, Hope Rude Christianity and, and a couple of the others um, talking about a similar topic. But he had a book that just came out um, a few months back uh, called Reviving Old Scratch. Love it. And so that is why. And by the way, he is, uh, if you check our show notes, it, his uh, uh, PhD is actually in psychology. Right. Which is so interesting. Yeah. Isn't, he, isn't it like uh, talking about the devil and demons for the doubters and disenfranchised or something like that? Isn't that the subtitle? I don't yeah. have it sitting here, but I think, I think that's what it was. And that drew me in because like when you start going through any kind of like awakening or deconstruction or you like, you know, take a critical lens at your tradition, there's a few things that just naturally stick out. It's like, Okay, six day creationism. All right, you got to figure out what the heck happened. <laughs> what do we do with that? Okay, yeah. hell, mm-hmm. Satan and demons. Yep. 
I mean, those are the big ones. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, obviously like the sexuality issue, that's going to probably right. come up at some point. We still just don't feel like we have the chops to tackle that one yet. <laughs> next year. Yeah. Next year. We'll, we'll, we'll handle that next year. Yeah. We're working on it. Yeah. But yeah, these are the big things that people want to talk about. And so this is like just, um, this is awesome. Yeah. When I picked that book up, man, I was literally like, I was not expecting him to say most of the things he said yeah. in that book. And it was better than I could have expected. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is that coming from a, uh, the perspective of a psychologist, you kind of have a preconceived notion. Yes. And so you're like... Yes, exactly. You're like, I, I'm pretty sure I know the angle he's going to take, but then the title kind of throws you off a little bit. Yeah. You know, because he, he goes into spiritual warfare. And, and so what I thought was really compelling about, you know, kind of the, the direction that he went with the book is that it, it, he reminds me of a newer, younger version of Dr. M. Scott Peck. Mm, so for yeah, those of you, you listening, that. yeah, yeah, those of you listening that remember um, the road less traveled, and who you know, some of our uh, our, our listeners who uh, uh, maybe a little older, you know, I thought that was a Robert Frost poem. <laughs> yeah, just kidding, but it did. But I think the road less traveled came on like the seventies, right? So yeah, sure did. But it was used at universities all over the place, and uh, so Dr. M. Scott Peck also, you know, uh, uh, I think back in those days they were referred to as psychoanalysts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but was a practicing psychiatrist for decades and decades and decades before he started his speaking tour and, and became a best-selling author. Um, he, he reminded me a little bit of him in in the regards that he, you know, can he's like, look, I can, I can diagnose somebody, sure, and 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 explain away uh, alleged demonic yeah. Uh, symptoms, yeah, by saying, you know, like by by going through the DSM. I don't know what number we're up to now, but five. I'm like- Five or six. Yeah. I know we're on at least five because I, I was uh, calling on psychiatrists for my job when five was coming out. Oh, wow. So it's like, oh, we're moving to five, <laughs> I think. Yeah, so. Could be wrong. It's been a while, but. Well, dude, I, don't, I can't keep up either, yeah, but. Whatever. But you know what I'm saying. We are so not experts. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> but like, you know, he, he, he could explain away most of these symptoms by saying, look, this is either symptoms of schizophrenia or, you know, uh, you know. Some some sort of mental ailment, right? And uh, and that's what I was expecting, man. I was yeah. expecting him to bring in like, hey, man, this is you know borderline personality disorder, and this is you know schizophrenia, and this is bipolar disorder, and you know this is you know what's what's one of the other ones like you know psychosis, this you know sociopath, this is you know whatever, yeah. just yeah. all of these different neuroses, and totally not where he goes. No, no. You got to listen to the interview and then hopefully read the book to yeah. to know a little bit more. Yeah, I think you guys are gonna like this one. So this one, uh, yeah, kind of uh, kicks off our our month of October, our our Halloween uh, series for you guys, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. So, and as always, uh, check out our forum, mm-hmm. Deconstructionist Anonymous, and uh, we've been trying to like get the conversation going over there amongst you guys. And uh, if if any episode we do is gonna jumpstart a conversation, I would assume it would be this one. Yeah, and you know, even little Twitter debates, little Twitter conversations are fun, you know, throw yeah. some stuff out. We'll try to retweet some stuff and just get some conversations going, hit yeah. something up on our Facebook page. I don't know anything about Facebook, so <laughs> I don't even know if we can do that. I'll, but. I'll get you. I'll get you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is this is going to be a good one. And guys, you know, for, for anybody here that, you know, is coming from, you know, an, uh, a traditional background or, you know, some, sometimes these things are a little bit difficult to talk about. Just come in with an open mind. Just listen. 
and think and converse and hopefully find some safe people that you can talk about these ideas with because you know the this these are very serious topics at the end of the day yeah and i think this would be a good time for us to uh probably we haven't done this in a while put out recommended reading oh right um we'll, we'll probably put up some some uh maybe on social media some recommended reading um and like adam said anytime you get into a topic like this where it's kind of presenting new ideas and things that kind of go against the grain of what you're used to mm. sometimes at least for me i know it's it's good to have some resources to look into uh, to dig a little bit deeper because obviously in an hour hour and a half we couldn't possibly go into every nuance no way. of this topic so we'll, we'll throw out some suggestions for you all right without further ado here we go talking about old scratch or satan or the devil demons for the doubters and the disenfranchised with Richard freaking Beck. Richard Beck, we are just so stoked to have you with us. Thank you so much for being a part of what we're doing here and being on the Deconstructionist podcast. Welcome. Well, excited to be here. Excellent. So one of the first questions we always like to ask, because uh, we, we like to think we have extraordinarily interesting guests on, is... We do. Uh, <laughs> and, or at and, least and, we do now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't before, but we do now. Yes. Uh, one of the things that we always like to ask, because we're always curious, is how, you know, how were you raised and how did you get into the work that you, you currently do now? Yeah. Well, I'm a psychology professor. Um, and a lot of people mistake me for a theologian online, but I am an amateur theologian at best. And um, <laughs> but I, my undergraduate degree was in Christian ministry. I thought at one point I wanted to work for a church, be like a pastor or a preaching minister. Um, but but early early on, I grew up in the Churches of Christ, which is a pretty conservative uh, faith tradition. And during my training as an undergraduate ministry, I kind of realized that I was. I guess getting a little too liberal for my faith tradition, and I figured being a preacher or a pastor would not be a good fit. So I, I, <laughs> I, I for, for for my mental health and the and the happiness of any church I would eventually work for, <laughs> I switched careers, <laughs> and I, I was looking for a career that would mix kind of theoretical, intellectual things, but also with a practical. Uh, pastoral kind of helping component to, which is one of the things I was attracted about ministry. I love the mixture of theology and the bookishness of it all, but also the the way you were, you know, practically living in the lives of other people. And so, so I, I, I shopped around and went into psychology for those reasons. I could still, it's very, still very practical discipline, but still had a lot of theory. And, and, um, and so it suited my skill set. So I went to graduate school, finished up in psychology and became a psychology prof. Wow, dude, that is awesome. So, I mean, what uh, what drew you to psychology? What said again? Just like, I mean, psychology in general is is there something about psychology that that you find particularly fascinating? Well, I think, I mean, it, it is a unique discipline where it feels like you can use it just about anywhere. Like, if you are into people watching at all, <laughs> you kind of, kind of want to know 
or, or like I tell, I like to tell my students, I got into psychology to survive family reunions. Uh, oh, that's, that's hilarious. That's my, my skill set. So, yeah, the, I actually wanted to work with uh, troubled adolescents at one point. I wanted to work mm. uh, with juvenile delinquents and, and things like that. Uh, my interest shift in grad school. But it was, yeah, there was there was the, the wanting to help, uh, the pastoral aspect of it, the therapeutic. Uh, and I actually worked before I got into teaching I actually worked for four years at a psychiatric hospital, and those were really formative years for me. I write about some of those in, in, in my recent book, too. Well, we want to talk about that book, and I'm holding on to it right here. And can I just say, this book is absolutely fascinating. Hopefully, we talk about it just enough to whet the appetite, and you sell like at least five more copies. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's, 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 that's not no enough to give away the big punchline at the end. No that's way, right. man. That's right. So the book is called <laughs> Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted. You got all the Ds in there. Yeah, we alliterated. <laughs> yeah. Good. Pre- preachers would like that, right? Don't oh, they like that? Especially Baptist preachers. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and that's that's perfect too because this is October. We're doing a whole month on hell and Satan and demons and all that kind of stuff. So, why did you write a book called Reviving Old Scratch? Who is Old Scratch? Why'd you write a book on Old Scratch? Okay, Old Scratch. I first heard Old Scratch out at a at the prison. I, I teach a Bible study with my friend Herb Patterson at a maximum security prison north of town, and one day he was praying. And he offered this petition, Lord, protect us from old scratch. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And neither did anybody sitting in the in the study that night. So I asked him and Herb is a generation older than me. And he grew up in the South. And that just was a Southern name uh, for the devil, old scratch. And so, yeah, so the, it's the book about the about the devil or what what some Christians call spiritual warfare. And the, the origins of the book are many. Uh, but one of them was simply my journey as a kind of a skeptical Christian who struggles with a lot of doubts, trying to rehabilitate uh, a belief in the devil, um, mm. to, to, figure, to figure out a way to talk about spiritual warfare well, because I just don't think we do it very well in Christianity. Mm. And and so the book was my it's very autobiographical about kind of journeying back to some language that I had thought I had kind of grown out of. Mm. That's so interesting. So it, 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 I think the thing that struck me as most interesting about that is that you're going from kind of the skeptical side to to more of a, a believer instead of the other way around, because that's normally how we how we would view that journey, I guess, uh, in regards to this pati- uh, particular topic anyway. Um, maybe before we get started talking about kind of getting into the, the meat of the book here, I, I think a good place to start is what because I know you talk about this a little bit, the history, the, the historical side of, of how the devil came to be, because um, not a lot of people probably know this, but as, as with a lot of the, uh, uh, I guess, topics or characters within the Bible, it was kind of created over a long period of time. And I know you, you talk a little bit about the origin of some of the names attributed to the devil within the Bible. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think most people that have studied from, from a like a dramatic or a literary perspective, kind of just notice that the devil develops um, throughout the pages of scripture. And and I think if you kind of grew up in the church, you've probably been handed a story about how all that ties together, but it's not obvious exactly. You know, there's debate, for example, at the very beginning of Genesis, whether or not the snake, you know, is actually the devil or not. I mean, Hebrew scholars will debate that. 
Um, but we have, if when I grew up in church, I knew exactly who the snake was, was the devil. And you also get a sense in the Old Testament where Satan seems to does, doesn't have a, as big a role in the life of Israel. But definitely by the time you open the page of the New Testament, Jesus confronts the Satan right out of the gate. And, and so something happens in the intertestamental period where the, the role of the Satan or the centrality of a conflict with Satan becomes really an important idea for the New Testament writers. And lots of scholars have speculated about all that. But for my purpose of the book, I just grab a hold of the, what the Hebrew word Satan means, which just means opponent or adversary. Mm. Because I think we can find a lot of common ground on that, because whether or not we're on the on the far one side where we believe wholeheartedly in the devil and in demon possession, and we have a very robust um, view of that versus people on the skeptical side, and, and, and that's where I was coming from. We can all, I think we can all find common ground that the kingdom of God experiences opposition um, in the world, it, that, mm. that, that it's a struggle uh, to live a kingdom life in the world, that, that, that we're constantly being asked to conform to the pattern of this world. I think, And so I think we can all buy into that middle language of the oppositional forces that we face in day-to-day life and, and and just label those the way the bible labels those as the satan yes man that's so good one of the things that um i kind of found throughout your book and i'm going to use a little bit of my own language here and really encourage everybody to to get this book i just so enjoyed reading it richard it was just it's really really a, fu- a fun informative book to read and i think one of the things you do a good job um talking to just really humbly invitingly is is the polarization that we find around this issue of Satan and demons and all these kinds of things that there is an over spiritualization on one side that you know there's groups of people out there and you know this isn't a judgment but you know it's just kind of a uh, a generalization for the sake of argument and conversation but it seems like there's this group of people that overly spiritualizes everything you know behind everything there's either a demon or an angel you know everything's you know possession and just hyper spiritualization over spiritualization but then you've got you know, the, the reaction to that, which is an over-materialization or an over, uh, yeah, just un, maybe an under-spiritualization of everything. And, you know, everything's got a natural scientific cause and there is no Satan, there are no demons. And you do a really good job speaking to both of that. I wonder if you could maybe talk about those two poles just a little bit and some of the things that you uncovered and, and unravel a little bit in this book towards both of those sides. Yeah, I mean, I have a real passion just in my my own my writing in my life to kind of build bridges between you know sectors of Christian Christianity that don't really talk to each other a whole lot. Mm. You know, the conservative uh, evangelical side, the progressive liberal side, and build trying to build bridges uh, between them. But I think you're right. Um, you know, when I was in college, there was a book series, a trilogy. I think it was a trilogy by Frank Peretti. Do you all know those books? Oh yes, yep. Piercing the Darkness. Yeah, the This Present Darkness books. Yes. And uh, yeah, on the on the one hand, there is this view that, yeah, I think you described it great, that there's behind every door or under every rock, there's a devil. And, and I think that can create a really unhealthy fascination with mm. the occult. Um, it, 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 and it fails to attend, at least in, in the way I write my book, that it fails to attend to kind of the more, you know, mundane aspects of what i think spiritual warfare is which is kind of loving the person right in front of you that that Mm. instead of looking for a devil um in your neighbor um try to find 
the spiritual struggle in your own heart. So there's a there's a problem when we externalize the devil and see it working all in our environment because we tend to see the devil working and operating in people, other human beings, and that's probably just not a healthy way to look at your next door neighbor as you know as an agent of Beelzebub. <laughs> you don't know my neighbor, man. <laughs> but on the so I do think there's some excesses there, you know, with with in charismatic and Pentecostal spirituality. There there, there can be some excesses. Yes. Um, but but on the liberal side, when you completely evacuate the world of any sort of supernatural element and you just reduce the battle against evil as the battle for justice in the world. The the dark side of that is you, you, it ends up doing exactly what it says it's trying to avoid, which is demonize other human beings. Because if all there are um, on this planet are other human beings, then making the kingdom come is, you know, the good guys beating up the bad guys and, and taking power away from them. So, so in both cases, I think both of those extremes tend toward demonization of one form or another. And I think Jesus is use of spiritual warfare was a way to kind of deflect that battle to another plane to where we can actually, you know, love our enemies and not demonize uh, the people um, uh, we find ourselves opposed to in the world. Man, that's good. Um, as kind of a follow-up to, to Adam's question just now, um, one of the books that I thought of as I was reading your book um, was a Slightly older book, um, a book that I always really enjoyed called People of the Lie by Dr. M. Scott Peck. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, yeah as a psychologist, I know it well. Yeah, yeah, great, good good stuff. And uh, sad that he passed away before we got a chance to talk to him. But <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things he talks about in People of the Lie, uh, which is just a book for, for people out there listening who aren't familiar with it, just on uh, the condition of uh, evil within human humankind, mm. Um and I'm just uh, curious your take on this. He he kind of talks about evil in in regards to scapegoating, and uh, and it seemed to me maybe at times, especially with the people that we know uh, firsthand, who tend to be more on the side of uh, over spiritualization. Um, is there? Do you think uh, a sort of scapegoating of the devil in regards to kind of uh, pushing off uh, the blame onto this this devil figure? Um, and and trying to kind of take the easy way out, you know, as opposed to um, kind of, uh, I guess, entering into personal change and that sort of thing. Yeah, mm. yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I definitely see that, and and that's one of the things. I wish you know, every time you publish a book, you feel like you should have added more into it because you <laughs> or whatever. But that that whole the devil made me do it. The undermining of personal responsibility and accountability um, has come up a lot. Um, after the publication of the book, and so so if I ever get a second edition, I'll add add what I'm about to say. But I I, I think spiritual warfare language look works really well um, when when we're using it as third person language rather than first person language. In other words, when you hear people say the devil made me do it, they're trying to um, take responsibility away from themselves, and I think that creates obviously problems. It reduces human agency and choice. Um, in particular, in taking responsibility for your actions. Um, I think, though, the, the, the language works really well when we're using it in a third-person perspective. When we, when we say, when we look at people in the world, rather than blaming them, um, we can look for other ways that they might have been pushed or pulled. Like, there but for the grace of God go I. Like, I would, I would just be as vulnerable. So I think spiritual warfare language 
it, when it's being used to create sympathy, let me say it that way, when it's being used to create sympathy for others and say, you know, we all experience temptations and forces. And so I can create uh, a loving response towards people rather than demonizing them, but seeing them as victims of evil rather than evil incarnate. I think that's when it works well. But when you when you're using that language for yourself and say, I personally didn't have any responsibility for what I did, but the devil made me do it. then I think that becomes really problematic. Um, so, so I think we have to be careful in how we're using it. Um, cause it's tricky. Uh, that's, I think one of the things I've discovered about this, it's really hard to talk about the devil. Well, and wherever you mm. go, there seem to be landmines. And that's one of those landmines where people kind of, you know, blame, blame the devil and don't own up to the choices that they're making. Mm. Man, that's really good. One of the things that I loved early on in the book is, uh, the way you employed Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just thought that was so brilliant and, you know, comedic, obviously, but it's like, it's one of those teaching moments where you're like, oh, yeah, that's like a perfect way to say it. So I don't know how you came up with that, but bravo, that was really good writing. And so really, you know, just to summarize for some people, and, you know, you expound on this in so many ways that they have to get the book to really get the breadth of it, but you talk about how in Scooby-Doo, you start off and everything is ghosts and ghouls and goblins and, you know, by the end of the episode, it's, you know, Mr. Jones, the banker in the rubber mask that, you know, you pull off and it's like, I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling yeah. kids. And you talk about how this is, you know, a lot of times what happens when we have these conversations. It starts off with a conversation about ghosts and ghouls and goblins, and it ends with a conversations about real people, flesh and blood, making material choices and decisions that impact people and have negative consequences. But then... This is where I'm going to get to my question. You say later, a few pages later, as the Bible's addressing this, this whole idea of principalities and powers versus our struggle not being against flesh and blood, it kind of pits these two against each other a little, or it sounds like it anyway. You, uh-huh. you do a really good job kind of getting into that, and you call them two sides of the same coins. You know, you say that the reason the Bible mixes and matches the human and spiritual powers is because the writers of the Bible didn't think these were different sorts of powers. They are instead manifestations of the same power. You say in the ancient mind, spiritual and political powers were two sides of the same coin. Could you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah. And a lot of that work comes from people like uh, uh, Walter Wink or William Stringfellow. There's lots of theologians that have done um, work on, on that on that interface. But yeah, when you we, we have tended to kind of radically divorce the political and the spiritual realm or the earthly and the spiritual realm, where, where in the ancient mind, in, in the biblical mind, they didn't see those as really different things. And, and the simplest way to think about this is the way they saw um, Caesar as a son of God. He was considered to be a son of God, the way Pharaoh was considered to be a god. Yeah. And, and so they saw the ancient societies as the political structures they were living in as manifestations of kind of divine, the, the divinity of kings. And that That's not that ancient of an idea that kind of that somehow there is this connection between the king and, and God or they are, or the king represents a demigod or a son of God. And so when the, the Bible speaks of what's called principalities and powers, it's it's mixing up all of these political and spiritual powers and and so there so and that helps push back on those two extremes you were talking about earlier where we, it seems like on one end we just want to reduce it just to spirits floating in the air versus the liberal impulse to just focus on social justice it's a both and 
And if you split the two, you actually kind of miss the bigger pattern. And I think that compromises our ability to battle evil in the world because we've we've been forced into a false dichotomy. So kind of all I have to say is if we can kind of recapture the biblical imagination of the conflation of the powers, spiritual and political, I think we would be better positioned to see it evil holistically in the world um, rather than liberals take one piece of it and conservatives the other. Mm. And you see that a lot in our current debate, right? Why, why, is it, why do bad things happen? Well, conservatives will say it's because of individual moral choices. It's all right. about morality. And liberals yeah. will say, no, no, it's all systemic. It's all systemic evils. As if those two things don't interact and interface in very complex ways. Um, and, and so I think that if the devil, I, I think I say this in the book, if the devil's pulling a big trick on the church, it's it's this choice the liberals and the conservatives choose their evil and they miss the bigger evil because they've been forced to make that choice. That's wow. great, man. Wow. Uh, to go back into a little a little history here, um, I know you mentioned this in your book, and I've heard other biblical scholars uh, discuss this idea as well. That that uh, p- perhaps the reference to you know the devil um, or demons are actually references, you know, like almost literary devices referencing um, idolatry and empiric uh, oppression, uh, specifically kind of pointing out the the issues that they had in that day and age, you know, constantly being invaded and that sort of thing by by empires such as babylon and rome mm-hmm. um you know obviously you know uh the, the oppression coming from from those two uh empires uh is that really you know what we're looking at because one of the things that i i remember reading through i don't know if you've read um marcus borg uh he did a really interesting um I, i'm trying to think which which book it was that he wrote but he he had this really interesting um, take on on revelations and how um, he felt it was just symbolic and and warning against the evils of uh, empire mm, and mm-hmm, oppression mm-hmm. Um, and that they that it's actually referring to uh, Babylon but more you know as a larger picture referring to uh, or warning rather against future empires and forgetting about the other or the less than yeah uh, is that is that possibly you know kind of what we're looking at here? No, I think that's exactly right. If you if you trace the development of demonology in the Bible, um, it, it it is it is rooted in the the idolatrous worship of pagan pagan gods. It's rooted in idolatry, um, and a lot of that idolatry involved child sacrifice. Um, and that's actually the origins of hell. The origins of hell, or the valley um, that is called Gehenna, was the place of Moloch worship right outside the gates of, you know, Jerusalem, where, where they would worship this Canaanite god Moloch and sacrifice their children there. And that became, when so Jesus talks about Gehenna or Hades, he's referring to a place of idolatry. And so I, I think idolatry is really kind of at the root of what we would call the demonic, the worshiping of false gods. And I think that makes spiritual warfare really, really relevant um, for all of us because mm. we're, we're all caught up in idolatrous practices. And that mm. can be the idolatry of nationalism, but it can also be the very mundane idolatries of my own personal um, life. And what that means, though, is that, that w- and I talk about this in the book, is, is how worship and praise um, become, you know, really important weapons in the battle to to express our and devote our allegiance to the kingdom of God and to renounce 
the kind of the idols that we bring in um, to the church uh, all the time. And that, that, that routine coming into worship is a renunciation of idols, but also pledging allegiance to the kingdom of God. So I think praise, as I describe in the book, is one of the most potent forms of spiritual warfare out there. Man. So how in the world did we get to where we're at now, which is this uh, red devil with a, what is it, a, tr- a trident and uh, and this fiery eternal hell? Because uh, it seems like that, I mean, if you asked anyone off the street, that's probably their, their, the, the most common perception, right? Yeah, like, horns so and a pitchfork. Did, how do we get from uh, kind of like uh, this, this uh, beautifully poetic uh, warning against empire and idolatry and not forgetting about the, uh, the the lesser and end up with this kind of strange, I don't know, almost cartoon version of, of this devil figure and, and who rules over hell. Yeah. Well, that you, you just went above my pay grade with that question. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Just your, just your opinion. Richard. We, yeah, we well, would just I love mean, to hear your I, opinion. I think it is. Well, I mean, one is just the cultural story of how, how you know the Christian tradition developed because a lot of what we believe to go back to your earlier earlier comments about how we read scripture a lot of what we read at um, or think about the devil isn't really produced by scripture it's really produced by Dante and Milton really yeah yeah those are those become so you're talking about how the devil figure has been kind of been a part of the Western canon and how it developed you know throughout Europe and and how that imagery um, eventually culminated in the kind of silly things we think about, you know, today. But, but as far as the deeper part of your question, like how do we lose track of that political component, the, the call to um, beware of empire um, as represented as Babylon, right? The image of Babylon in scripture. Um, You know, I think there's lots of different, you know, explanations for it, but I think one of them is that I think Christianity, at least in Protestantism, just became really focused on the the the, the private life. Uh, Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, tells a bit of this story about mm. the, the there a divide in the last five hundred years has been introduced between the public and the private. So religion is the sphere of your own personal kind of moral and spiritual struggles, and so to struggle spiritually is to kind of struggle in your own heart and your own mind. Mm. And once once spirituality is kind of reduced to what's kind of happening inside your skull and not in spirituality isn't about the way you interact with the structures of the of the of our world politically or economically. Yeah. Then you've effectively kind of drawn a circle around the domain of the devil. Now the, de- the devil is just a like a tempter. You know, he's tempting me to eat another piece of chocolate cake or to look <laughs> at pornography. And those are I'm not saying those aren't legitimate spiritual struggles. But there's such a small piece of, of the biblical imagination because mm. you know, if you think about the temptations that the, the devil offers Jesus, he doesn't offer him sex, you know, which he, he doesn't appeal to the flesh. Like his final temptation is he stands him up on top of a, a temple and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's like mm. a political, it's a political offer. Gosh, man. And, uh, and Jesus picks a different path. Oof. Oh my gosh! Oh, so good. I just want to like have everybody pause and just think about that for a second. Oh man! Well, to make it to make it even more, you know, pinch during an election year, 
is, I mean, isn't that still the offer that Satan's offering the church? Like, I will let you be in charge if you worship me. Does that make sense? Like, we are still trying to want the power um, to make the world come out right. And Jesus had a choice to do that. He opted for the path, a different path, you know, the a cruciform path. Mm. But I think I think that offer that Satan is giving, I will give you, I will give you the kingdom if you want it. You know, here are the keys. I think we're still trying to grab the keys. Yeah, yeah. We use the build the kingdom using the devil's tools, as uh, as Derek Webb would say. Oh man, one of the things that just really, really touched me and, and got me thinking about so many different things is. All of what you're saying just sounds really, really great, and you know, I, I love it, and I, I'm, I'm on board, and I'm trying to think like a skeptic right now because you know you're starting to give some new explanations that make it a little bit easier to then go back to the Bible and actually start engage with engaging with a vital relationship with, like, say, the Gospels, and like everybody loves Jesus, but one of the big things, the big problems that skeptics have when they open up the Gospel and they kind of start following the ministry of Jesus is like the, the dude is just like exercising people all the time. He's casting demons out of this and that and throwing them into pigs and, you know, what is going on? And like Thomas Jefferson, as you mentioned, you know, he just couldn't deal with a lot of that stuff anymore. You know, we're empiricists now. We're rational. We're logical. We're not hyper superstitious like all those people were back then. So let's get our scissors out and make a Jefferson Bible that cuts all of that crap out. And one of the things that you say in your book is you say, we failed to grasp the exact nature of Jesus's provocation because of all the snipping that's been going on, all of all this cutting out, all this stuff that we do because we just can't make heads or tails out of it anymore. You say with old scratch with Satan snipped out of the gospels, we've lost track of what Jesus was up to and why he was killed. Would you talk a little bit about what do we do when we get to the gospels? We see all these exorcisms and we just want to snip them out. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and, and some people leave men. I, I, I've talked to progressive doubting skeptical people like myself. You know, those are the, those are the parts of the gospel story that kind of make us, um, uneasy. And, but I think on the conservative side, there's other parts that they kind of ignore. Um, you know, the way Jesus was kind of hard on families. Uh, you know, he, he, he said some tough things about divisions being introduced into families and, and conservatives don't like those parts. And so, yeah, I think we're all trying to create a Jesus that suits us really well. I like mm. It's one of my fundamental hermeneutical principles that Jesus should bother me. Like if Jesus isn't bothering me in some way, then I'm probably not reading the gospels well. So I always, I always wanted Jesus that unsettles me a little bit. Um, but, but a part of that, the, the fact that we haven't grasped the exact nature of the provocation is that, that when liberals read Jesus, they kind of see like a political activist. You know, he's lifting up the least of these. He's standing up for the little guy. And that seems to resonate with liberal sensibilities. And conservatives see, um, you know, kind of a different Jesus. Uh, but but when you ponder and look at what Jesus was actually really doing in the Gospels, he, he, he was doing really weird things if, if you considered him to be an activist. He wasn't really saying a whole lot about Roman occupation he, he didn't rail against the state or lead a march or have people sign petitions. Right. Um, and so if he's an activist, he's a weird one. He's a peculiar one. He's not what we think of as an activist. 
And so so the, the call in the book is to kind of pay attention to actually what Jesus was doing and what was so upsetting about his, his life and his ministry. Uh, and the central, and so you're going to need a vision of what that looks like. And so for me, it's his confrontation with Peter. Jesus proclaims that he's going to go to the cross. And Peter tries to tell him, no, we're not going to do that. And Jesus turns on him and says, get behind me, Satan. And to me, that that's that's the central image of what spiritual warfare is supposed to look like. It is the te- it is Jesus is calling me toward the cross and this Satan is tempting me away from it. That that's what it means to renounce Satan. That's what it means to resist the devil. Is is that choice between the cross or my own self interest? And and I, and as best I can tell, I don't care if you're conservative or liberal. The cross never sells. Like it's just not an attractive option. Nope. And I, and that's why I think sometimes what passes in conservative and liberal circles for Christianity doesn't sound very much like Jesus at all because the cross isn't really being preached. Man, that's good. Ugh. Ugh. So, <laughs> wow, how do I follow give, that? Give me a sec. I need uh, a sec. <laughs> okay. So, uh, if you had, if, uh, how do I even phrase this? Take, take you, a minute, John. You've thrown me off now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, what, is, what is the main goal for you for, for this book? What, what do you want people to get out of this? Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, really, this might be a weird, weird thing to say, and, and, and some co- some reviewers have commented about this. That they said this is one of the more inspirational books about the devil they've ever read. Oh, I, I completely agree. <laughs> Which is, and and I think it's inspirational because the devil is just another way to talk about the 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 kingdom of God. That might sound really paradoxical, but if if the Satan is the is the thing that's adversarial to the kingdom of God, then obviously you got to spend a lot of time talking about what the kingdom of God is and what it looks like to fight for it. And so for me, the book is really a call to to kind of love in the risky ways Jesus loves and in the face up to the way that that's kind of difficult. Um, or the way I like to say it is this, like, I think love is really heroic. And, and that means if love is heroic, that, ha- that has to assume a diabolical background. Otherwise, it wouldn't be all that heroic. You, you wouldn't have any friction. You wouldn't have any resistance. Um, and so I'm calling people to kind of this heroic vision that love involves um, kind of a daily struggle to to love the person, you know, right right in front of you. Um, I, I guess so. That's why I tell a lot of the stories about out out of the prison because that's where I kind of need, felt like I really needed to kind of reengage this whole spiritual warfare thing. I didn't think I had a lot of use for, and so I tell the story. Um, where I was trying to teach the Beatitudes out of the prison. Yeah. And as I was teaching the Beatitudes, uh, you know, like, blessed are the meek, they were just starting to get really skeptical looks on their faces. And I stopped and I said, it, it looks like you guys aren't buying what I'm selling here. And they said, you know, w- we appreciate what you're saying, but you just can't be meek out here at the maximum security prison because, you know, meekness is mistaken for weakness. Like, you could get hurt. And I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't feel like I could insist on the point because I was leaving in 30 minutes. Uh, and and so I, I, I was shaken. Like, really, I remember just being shaken. Like, who who teaches a Bible class anymore where the class goes, nah, too hard. We're not going to do it. You know, it's kind of a weird <laughs> response. But but as I left that night, I remember standing out in the parking lot um, thinking, 
you know, but is it any less crazy to live out the Beatitudes on the outside? Uh, and in the book is arguing it's not, it's not any less crazy. It's, it's love is, love is hard. And, and so if I have a goal for the book, it's to call people to that, to that adventure, um, to love and, and to, to be willing to, to take the risks, uh, to live as a meek person in a world that's not, that, that lives by dominance and power, um, out there or, or to give people the courage to step into the forgotten nooks of servanthood in, in the world. Uh, I think, I think uh, Henry Nouwen said the big temptations of the modern age are the temptation to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful. Mm. And we're so addicted to those things yeah. that we can't wash feet. Mm. Because, because our self-esteem is so um dependent upon attention and and praise that to 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 stand in the corner and just wash feet um because you know we just can't do it we we need to be pushing out in the limelight and i think that's i think that that shame we experience in servanthood is one of the greatest temptations of the devil in the modern era. We can't call people to servanthood because that's not the way you get ahead. And that's not, you know, and Facebook makes it all worse. You know, the comparative game that we play watching other people who are more successful at us just makes us more addicted um, to, to attention. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think I'd like to encourage people to, to step step into a life livelihood of service mm. uh, and give them the, the kind of the shame resiliency they need to do that. Um, and I, and I, that's where to say one other, come back and close a, a loop. I think that's another place where worship steps in because it's in worship. Not only you're renouncing idolatry in worship, but you're also trying to recover your identity as God's beloved. And it's that identity as God's beloved that allows you to operate in the world uh, in unseen ways, because you don't need the applause of the world if you if you're constantly recovering, receiving your identity through through Christ. Man, that's good. I loved what you're saying about um, this. Was so helpful to me as somebody that's deconstructing some of the ideas that I was just kind of you know whimsically kind of passed down. You know, just you know, not not intentionally wrong or anything. A lot of times, people just don't think what they're teaching. You know, that a lot of things that don't get explanation become these assumptions that create a lot of problems. But just, just this whole idea of getting back to the root word of the, the word, the Satan means the adversary. And if there is a reality of love, Trinitarian love at the, at, you know, beneath and round and through everything, then the Satan is just the adversary of that kingdom, that, that, that love breaking into our reality. And, and you, there's this part in the book that I just love, and I'm, I'm trying to whet people's appetite to go get this book because it's so good, where you talk about this, this, this adversary of the kingdom of God, and you say, um, talking about the adversary, the Satan, you say that hate is the Satan of love. Exclusion is the Satan of inclusion. War is the Satan of peace. Oppression is the Satan of justice. Tearing down is the Satan of building up. And you just list this, you know, it's unbelievable how you, you just made that so clear for me. And I just want to thank you. And I, I hope that there's a lot of people on our, uh, listening to our show that are just trying to make heads or tails out of what spirituality or Christianity or whatever means to them now that they've opened Pandora's box and started asking questions. And I wonder if you could just 
real quick, just kind of speak to some of these people that look at the supernatural aspects of, you know, demons and the devil and things like that. And they go, man, I just, I, I just can't, I don't know. Like what, what, what would you say to some of those people that just have such a hard time with this? Where, where should they start? Yeah, well, I think, um, can you also hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, the, well, first of all, I get it. And, and it's not like my own skepticism has, has evaporated. You know, I still struggle with, uh, with a lot of these kinds of things. But, but what helped me was uh, kind of worshiping on the margins because what drew me to the margins of my society was kind of my disenchanted worldview. I thought, you know what, there might not be a devil, but I think there's lots of evil in the world that I could, you know, struggle against. So I, you know, I was concerned about things like mass incarceration. So I go out to the prison and I was concerned about, you know, economic injustices and wealth inequality. And so I share life with a mission church in my town where I worship with the poor. And so I found myself, in those places because of my doubts, you know, I'll just, you know, work for social justice in the world. Mm. But when I found myself on the margins of society out at the prison and amongst uh, my poor neighbors, well, the world you you run out to in the margins of society is very enchanted. I mean, full of experiences with the devil and, and, full of talk about spiritual warfare. And that's also the case globally in, on the, in the margins of global Christianity are, are the most charismatic and Pentecostal. It's the West that's peculiar in its doubts about the devil. Um, and so there's this irony here where you see a lot of kind of progressive liberal Christians who are the most concerned about colonialism and importing Western, you know, you want to respect um, marginalized cultures, and yet we're the ones that have the most colonialistic view of spiritual warfare. Wow! We, we just think our doubts trump the experiences of the poor. Um, Man, you know, and a good advocate here is Pope Francis. Like lots of liberals mm. love Pope Francis, but because of his experience of the, with the poor in Latin America. Um, lots of people have commented about he this pope that seems so concerned about justice is also the pope that talks the most about the devil. Wow. In recent popes. So all I would say is in the book, I coined a term called theological solidarity. Mm. Um, uh, and, and the idea there is I go out to the margins of my society, of my town and, and my job is to stand in solidarity, and that even means theological solidarity um, with with my neighbors. And, and what I mean by that is, is that I stand in solidarity with, with, with whatever they experience as good news. And when they say that, you know, they come in and they say, God, I was in this battle with the devil or Satan, and I prayed to God, and he delivered me, and, and hallelujah, I stand in solidarity with that. Um, I, I still don't know how it all works and I still have my skepticism, but I've, I've learned to kind of marginalize my doubts a little bit. And I guess maybe I'm growing to doubt my doubts, perhaps. I'm deconstructing my deconstruction. <laughs> That's, That's good. awesome. And we, <laughs> and we all need to do that. Yes. Listener, take note. 
Oh man, that's that's funny that you said that because that leads us into uh, our last question for you, which is actually along the same lines. Um, what I found interesting uh, in your book and and just in you know some of the interviews that you've done is that you still kind of leave the door open a little bit for this. Um, I don't even know what you uh, would call it, like a um, spiritual realm of evil, uh-huh. um, if you will. Um, and I found that interesting because uh, again, I ref- I know I referenced M. Scott Peck earlier. Right. Uh, but those who follow his work know that the last book that he wrote was specifically about um, what he felt were some actual exorcisms that he participated in. Um, and I don't know if that was just because he was like, you know what, I, I think I'm near the end. I'm just going to put this one out there because I don't, you know, <laughs> but yeah, uh, but but he also, you know, well-respected uh, man in the in the field of psychology uh, also, you know, came at it from a from an um a skeptical side, but but left room for the the fact that who knows maybe you know so so where do you where do you stand on that because I know you talk about that a little bit in your book. Well, I mean to be honest, um, I, I mean I've had I've had experiences in my in this church I go go to because again, like I said, it has a charismatic and Pentecostal flavor, and if you're in those contexts, you're going to have people manifesting. Um bizarre behaviors that they will describe and that the community of faith will describe as demonic affliction. And so, yes, I've been in situations where people are are being prayed over and experiencing relief from after the prayers of deliverance. And so insofar as those are exorcisms, I've seen those and been a part of those prayer circles um, over people. And I think anybody who's been in charismatic Pentecostal context have been have been in those situations. The question is, can I explain that as a psychologist in a different kind of way? And I probably could, and because I've seen, like I mentioned at the start of this podcast, like I've worked for four years at a psychiatric, psychiatric hospital, so like I've seen some things. Um, I, I guess what I would say is, I, yeah, I've had experiences like that, but I'm comfortable explaining them from two different perspectives um, without allowing one to trump the other. Wow, um, that's good. And... and so, and I think that's the tendency. The tendency is to say, well, if it's demonic affliction, then there's no psychological aspect to it at all. Or if it there is a psychological aspect, then somehow the devil also can't be involved in that. That's some. I guess what I'm saying is the world one one worldview or the other has to trump. And so I think I'm trying to become bilingual. That's good. And, yeah, and allow 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 that to in, those two worlds to inform each other. Um, in, in many ways, uh, because I do think if you tilt one way to another, like you were, go, you were saying, if we, if we rely too much on the spiritual, spiritual explanation, then you're not attending to, to mental illness or the counseling or the healing that might need to be a part of a person's growth process. You're just sending them back to deliverance ministries over and over and over again every week. Um, but if we also just medicalize everything— yeah, and I also think we're going to miss the things that you know Scott Peck was talking about. You're going to miss the dark spiritual dynamics that seem to be that seem to crop up, um, um, and, and, and kind of don't are not so easily captured by the, the idiom of mental illness. Oh man, that's that's good. Um, well, so before good. we let you go. Uh, where can the listeners find uh, your latest book, Reviving Old Scratch, and, and what's the easiest way for them to stay on top of what you're what you're currently working on? Uh, I think the easiest place to get it is Amazon. So go to Amazon and 
type in Reviving Old Scratch or my name, Richard Beck. And um, I write each week on a blog called Experimental uh, Psychology. And so if they Google Experimental Psychology, uh, not, not Experimental Psychology, uh, Experimental Theology. <laughs> yeah. I am an experimental psychologist, but my blog is Experimental Theology um, at blogspot.com. And I'm there. I write every week, Monday through Friday. Yeah. Oh, man, that is so great. I can't tell you how much I've just enjoyed this, you know, being a podcast host, you know, a lot of times makes it seem like, you know, I don't need to hear this stuff and I'm just curating it for somebody else. But this has just been wonderful for me personally. The book, uh, your demeanor, your experience, your heart coming through. I just want to thank you um, in all sincerity, Richard, for being with us and doing what you do the way you do it. Thank you. I'm really honored. I, I, that's, that's a great compliment. I appreciate it. Oh, I mean it. Well, we, we just appreciate you uh, uh, taking some time out of your schedule. We know you have a, a meeting to get to, it sounds like. So um, thank you so much for being on our show. We really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm excited to be a part of this October lineup, man. This is, <laughs> is going to be an exciting month for y'all. It is going to be a very exciting month. We have been excited about this since we first thought of doing this podcast. We've been like, if, if this goes well, October, we could do like a whole month on hell and Satan and demons. and <laughs> hell, Yeah, it'd be amazing. So we're excited too, man. Thank you so much for being a part of it. We uh, hope we get to do something with you again in the future because this is a blast. Great. Thanks, guys. Blessings. Thanks, Richard. Blessings to you too, friend. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, that was that was so much fun. Dude, I wish this is one of the ones that I really wish people could have seen how just delightfully warm and like fun this guy would have looked like on video. Yeah. As soon as he came up on the screen, I was like, oh man, I wanna I wanna hang out with this guy. Not what I thought a psychology professor would look Not like. Not at all, man. <laughs> he totally looked like the like just sort of, you know, I think he had like a Hawaiian shirt on, yeah. with long hair, beard. He looked kinda like, you know, like what you would expect your like the Big Lebowski, like, you know, the, the, the dude. <laughs> the dude. The dude. <laughs> El uh, There was some dudage in him a yeah. little bit. He was influenced. He had a splash of dude. He did. And it was great. Ah, oh, what a cool guy, man. He was awesome. I, I loved his overall message, though. It was just very, like, like we were saying in the intro, I think, um, I compared him to uh, M. Scott Peck, Dr. Yeah. M. Scott Peck. Right. Where I think both of them would probably agree that although their their profession, you know, kind of probably eliminates a lot of what what some traditional people would say hey this is a demon possession or this is the devil uh made me do it or whatever i think their profession would eliminate a lot of that but yet they still kind of keep the door open and say like look i don't know there could be a completely this this whole spiritual realm and if that's the case i'm okay with that too right 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 which i think you know for a lot of big topics like this where we there's just no real way to know for sure no, man. That's it's kind of the approach you got to take. I right? think that if there's an underlying theme to so much of what we talk about on here, it's we just like to make people a little bit more careful or maybe a little bit less certain of how much assumption that they have packed into the language that they use. Yeah. So like language, 
we're, we're trying to say a little bit more when we're talking about these things. We've got to open it up and realize that we are talking about things that language can't quite get at. And so it's metaphorical a lot of the times, and it's symbolic a lot of times, but that doesn't make it not true, and it doesn't make it less true. If right. anything, it opens it up to a deeper and more complex level of truth than you may have otherwise thought about before. So, you know, we may have always assumed that the devil is just some being of evil and Satan's demons are just these little piddly little demons and, you know, all these kinds of things. And I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm saying that it's it's got to be at least more than just, you know, some little guy, like, you know, with horns and a pitchfork. Like, <laughs> yeah, there has got to be some sort of metaphorical language or mythological language to that that opens it up to lots more to talk about, like, what all of that is. Yeah. And I think the the breakdown of language is the thing for me that just keeps coming up over and over and over again the more episodes we do. It's like, okay, it's not so much that that thinker or that thinker or that book or that book took me and just put me on a whole different plane and now I just don't think any of those things anymore. Right. If anything, it's like everything around you opens up and the place just gets bigger and there's just more to talk about and it's just more expansive, I guess. There's more room for more ideas. That's that's the perfect way to put it. Um, I, I think, especially because, you know, a lot, a lot of times we try to dig into a lot of this material in preparation, obviously, to write questions and stuff for the interviews. So I've been digging into a, a ton of, um, you know, Obviously, some of our, well, I can't really say yet <laughs> who our guests are, but, but I, I've been digging into a ton of different material, not just by the, the, the guests that we have on, but by other, other um, you know, writers, thinkers, um, just to get different perspectives. And, and, and the one thing that it's, it's kind of led me to realize is you know, just how much I t- I've taken for granted language in general. That's it. You know, it's like I, I never really had a, a firm grasp because it's not something you talk about necessarily in, in the context of church. Like just right. how nuanced and precise the Greek language was. Well, and just how, like, well, before we even got into any of this, and, you know, everybody should go out and buy this on Amazon because you can probably get it for like a dollar. Um, C.S. Lewis has a secular book when he was just a professor that was published through Oxford called Studies in Words. Yeah. And at the end of C.S. Lewis's Studies in Words, where he's not talking about religion or any aspect of religion at all, he's just talking about linguistics. And at the end of it, he, he reach, there's a chapter called The Limits of Words and The Limits of Language. And one of the things that you'll start to realize if you really appreciate what is being said and you appreciate communication and how important ideas are and how they're, you know, very powerful and can change the world, you'll realize just how small and fragile words are to yeah. communicate things. And how a lot of times, this is why, I like, I think Richard Rohr is just catching fire in the world because he puts more, not more weight or more value, but he's like, dude, experience does more to us than just phrases. Like, sentences don't do as much as experience. You can talk about something all day long but when you experience something you're left stuttering you you can't you're like it's like this or it was like that or it was you know you know how was that experience how was that date oh man it was like oh you know you just you know i don't i can't even i don't know i can't i can't describe it yeah like i can't describe you know how filled with joy adam was when we talked to tim keller I, (laughs) i i can describe it to you all day but you guys will never know what that what that looked like i was like moses coming down the mountain and my wife had to put a veil over my face (laughs) (laughs) permanent smile all night that was fun (laughs) yeah it was that was that was like old school one of my old school idols but yeah this 
this guy, <laughs> what this guy did for me again and again and again and again is like, I need to be far less confident in what I think and have determined that these words mean. And I need, like Caputo would say, to open them up to the future of themselves and realize that there's an infinite amount of experience and, and meaning that can be put into words. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work, you know? One of the things um, that I've realized is that, you know, truly to start to think on my own and to, um, to really dig into this stuff, you know, sometimes does take a lot of work. It takes a lot of different resources. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, when it comes to like reading scripture, for example, takes a couple different translations I like to compare against one another. Um, so, you know, if you guys go back to our, our series on scripture earlier this year, that's something that Dr. Timothy Mackey talks about um, in episode one of that. So it's like, you know, it's, it's not as cut and dry and as easy as I once imagined that it, that it was. Right. And so, yeah, that's one of the things that, that I've learned along the way. And, and again, you may not 100% agree with everything the guests this month have to say, but um, I think it's important to at least take in what, what they are saying and, uh, you know, um, dig a little bit on your own and, and, and see, you know, see if there's a, a little more out there that maybe you weren't aware of previously. So we're just trying to shake it up a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. just engage in the journey, man. I think that's what it is. It's like actually engage right. in the journey. Yeah. Sweet. That was fun. This was so much fun. <laughs> and we've got a whole like month left. Yeah. Of more. We're <laughs> talk about hell. Oh, yeah. Multiple times. A Eternal lot. damnation. Yeah. We're going to talk about, yeah. <laughs> and I still haven't figured out the music yet. <laughs> we love you guys so much. Thank you so much for hanging with us. And we hope you're having a great October. <laughs> yes. And whoever the musical guest is, please go out and support them <laughs> and tell them we sent you. <laughs> Check the show notes. Yeah, it'll be. We had, we had to record this uh, in a little bit in advance of knowing what the music was going to be. John has to go on vacation. so You do need a vacation. I do need <laughs> Good for you, buddy. Everybody Thanks. wish John a happy vacation, even though he's already back by the time you hear this. Oh, I'll be well back by this point. All right, for now, we are your hosts. I am Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everybody. We'll see you next week in hell again. <laughs>
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.